Hey folks, welcome back to Input Output Episode 7. We are going to be discussing Weezer's White Album in just a few minutes, but with me as always is my friend Vince, I am Brian, and we are part of the Multiversity Podcast Network. Check us out at multiversitycomics.com for this and many other podcasts. So, before we started to record, we were talking about Vince's birthday. Happy birthday, buddy. Oh, thank you. And he said he got a fun game for, uh, for his birthday music game, so I said, let's play it on the air. So we're going to. So Vince, uh, what's the name of this game? Yeah, so it's called uh, it's called The Name Chase um, Music Icons Edition. So I, I imagine they must have other versions of this game with, like, you know, maybe actors and stuff, you know. Um, but it's, it's made by a company named... Uh, Geo Toys, G-E-O Toys, which I believe is out of Wisconsin, actually. Um, though I don't think my fiance knew that when she bought it. Um, she's very anti-Wisconsin, so um, <laughs> no. Um, but essentially, what the what the point of the game is is you have teams, or it can just be two people playing, um, and. There is a musical artist. There's four. There's a card with four mu- musical artists on it, and each of the artists has four clues underneath. And uh, the clues kind of go from uh, um, more difficult or esoteric to very specific. And you start with the top clue. You read it. If the person guesses right, they get 20 points. If they have to go to the next clue, they get 15 points. They have to go to the third clue, ten points, and so on. But and there's um, but there's four different questions per card. Yes, four okay. different four different artists with four clues each. Right, why don't Why don't I do one card? Yes, let's do a whole card for you. Okay, cool. I think I think it'll go pretty quickly. Okay. All right. So, first artist, first clue. Father was a Mexican mariachi singer. Now I think in the official rules, like. You get one get like you can decide when you're gonna guess, and okay. and then like if you got it wrong, we we wouldn't go on. But Erica and I play where you can guess at every clue. Okay, and... so so I can guess now. Yeah, I'm fine with you. Yeah. Okay, I don't think that I wouldn't categorize his father as mariachi, but is it Enrique Iglesias? No. Okay. Next clue. Rose to fame at Woodstock. Oh, Carlos Santana. Yeah, there you go. 15 points. All right, next one. Russian composer, pianist, and conductor. Uh, let's see. Stravinsky? Yeah. Wow, okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you are blowing Erica and me away here. <laughs> that was a lucky guess, to be fair. I mean, I, I know a little bit about Stravinsky, but that was a, that was a guess. So. Sure. So then, so then, just to let you know, like how this would have gone. Okay. Like, yeah. Let's go back. Let's go back to Santana. If you would have needed the third clue, it would have been won nine, <laughs> won nine Grammys in the year two thousand. Okay. Mostly thanks to Rob Thomas, right? right? Yeah. 
Um, and then the last uh, clue would have been Black Magic Woman, which okay. only would have been worth five points. So okay. see, it gets incredibly easy once you get to the end, you know. Yeah. Although if you're not familiar with, like, Stravinsky's would have been the Rite of Spring. Yeah, I would have gotten that. Yeah, yeah. But I probably wouldn't have because I'm a classical Luddite. We got two more here. Okay. Rapper, songwriter, producer rose to fame in 1994. 94. Uh, Sean Puffycombs? No. (laughs) Six number one rap albums tied with Eminem and Kanye West. Jay-Z? No. Boy, (laughs) this is going to give it away. Excuse the pronunciation. Sure. Born Born Nasir bin Alu Dara Jones oh. in 1973. Nas. Yep. I wouldn't have pegged Nas as a producer necessarily. I'm sure he has produced stuff, but I'm sure he has. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. They get real technical to like kind of throw the scent off. Right. Right. Listen up, you can be anything in the world, and God we trust. An architect, doctor, maybe an actress, but nothing comes easy. It takes much practice. Like, I met a woman who's becoming a star. She was very beautiful, leaving people in awe. Singing songs, Lena Horn, but the younger version hung with the wrong person, got a strong on that. So, what is that? That was 20 points for Stravinsky, 10 for Nas, 15 for Santana? Yeah, yeah, okay. so you're killing it. You got what? What is that, 45? Yeah, 45. And. Um, all right, last one. Rock musician from Detroit, Michigan. Uh, okay, there's there's two possible <laughs> answers here. I feel like I'm gonna go Bob Seeger. Oh no. Okay. But I think I think you probably know then. You'll know now. Okay. Author author of New York Times bestseller God Guns and Rock and Roll. Yeah, it's uh <laughs> Ted Nugent. The dude. Got, you got 60 points off this card, um, which Erica and I have played this for two nights, and mm. we're tied at 55 right now. Oh. So one, one card, you're blowing us away. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, 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 Ted Nugent in, in, intrigues me because he's such a fucking asshole. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but also, can I, re- can I read you the third uh, hint on this yes, card? Yes, go ahead. Called Barack Obama a quote subhuman mongrel. <laughs> yeah, that would have given it away too. Yeah. But uh, one of my favorite things about Ted Nugent is um, his 
<laughs> apparently this every concert he does this he'll be playing a little solo and he'll say sound good and everyone goes yeah he goes fuck you sound great <laughs> <laughs> and i just love that for some reason i do like that that's yeah I, i'll give him i'll give him one thing that's yeah. clever so i see your game and i raise you a game oh boy uh, i just realized that sitting on my desk is a gift from my parents for christmas i haven't opened yet and it's a card game called music star <laughs> and it is it has five questions per card, but there's no there there isn't the the different like point values. Okay. So let's do this though. I sc- there were four points on there and the maximum score was eighty. Right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Alright, yep. so there's five questions on here. So let's make the maximum score let's do let's do twenty points apiece. Okay. Alright. And and this is it says here, let's see, Music Star by Quiz Factory. Um it looks like it covers pretty much like the the popular music era, but with emphasis from like the eighties till today. Okay. So okay. Which song from the movie Ghost begins with the lyrics, Oh my love, my darling? Oh, it's um I hunger for your touch. Um that wins. I I don't need you to give me the actual name. You know what it is. It's, is that is that uh hold on, is that Unchained Melody? It is Unchained Melody, yeah. yeah. This one's a uh, layup as well. Um, which famous American rapper was born Marshall Bruce Mathers III? Oh, man. Slim Shady. Eminem. And of course. Of course. So speaking of Detroit. That that as well, yes. Um, okay, which artist had his 1988 U.S. bestseller with "Get Out of My Dreams, Get Into My Car"? Oh, uh, is that Eddie Money? No, but you're, no? you're 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 not that far off. Damn, you're gonna say it, and I'll know. Uh, ah, shit, just tell me. Uh, it's one William Billy Ocean. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Duh. <laughs> with a stranger <laughs> absolutely uh insert girls reference here <laughs> um okay which female singer released an album t- entitled e equals mc squared oh i know this too i knew it but i couldn't pull it when i was looking at it just a minute ago i'm just gonna say missy elliott but 
I don't think that's you right. Know, that was my guess as well, but no, it's Mariah Carey. Damn it. The MC okay. is right in there for us. And we yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, Missy Elliott's an MC, right? Oh, I mean, uh, there we go. If it's a camera up in here, then it's only you for me when I do, I do. If it's a camera up in here, then I best like I just look on YouTube, YouTube. Cause if you're on your mouth and brag about the secret rendezvous, all right last one what 1981 song was written by lionel richie and performed as a duet with diana ross oh um 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 uh, endless love. Yep, endless love. Correct. Yeah, friends listen to endless love in the dark. <laughs> I was just gonna say that. <laughs> uh, Sixty points, my friend. You got All three. Right. Three correct. We tied. We did tie. That's nice. I was just listening to, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter. Well, you must have because I tweeted you about it. I was listening to the hot, the Billboard Hot 100 hits from yes. 1980 on, and Endless Love is on there. So that's probably the reason why I was able to okay. pull it like the way I did. But so um, that's a weird experience. Well, it, it, it's interesting you say that. My brother is a scientist who lived for two three-month periods in a tent in Antarctica. And when he went down there, one of his friends gave him a couple of like a DVD that had all the number one hits from 1970. I think it was five through 2003. Oh wow! And then he gave that to me. So in my iTunes library, I have every number one hit from those like you know 28 years, whatever it is. Nice. And, and uh, occasionally, I will do like an afternoon of listening. To, I'll just pick a random year and listen to the hits. And it's crazy what songs are popular at the same time. Yeah. What made you choose 1980? Um, I just thought, I don't know. I just, I guess I just thought that was a good place to start the eighties. I don't disagree. I felt like, I felt like listening to some like cheesy music Mm -hmm. and I feel like if you started in 1970, there's less of that. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't like, I really wanted to listen to Christopher Cross. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, one of my go-to karaoke jams is Arthur's theme, by the way. <laughs> is it? <laughs> yes, it is. Nice. Where, where has the theme song gone that tells you the plot of the movie? <laughs> Unironically, through lyrics.
I was just thinking about the Mr. Belvedere theme song for did some see, reason. Did you see what I retweeted today? No. Somebody, uh, a guy, uh, Jordan Morris, a comedian I follow on Twitter, he's, he tweeted, wakes up in a cold sweat. Guys, I think the Mr. Belvedere theor- theme is my jam or something like that. It was, it was like a very, uh, very applicable to our conversation right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, I was <laughs> I was thinking about I mean, Mr. We're, Baseball, Bob Euchre, and, oh, okay. uh, and for some reason. And then I thought of that theme song and I thought, you know, that's a pretty good theme. I thought you were walking by your China cabinet and there were streaks <laughs> on the China. And up until now, that was not your concern. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> We've gone down a rabbit hole, folks. Yeah. This is when the show's at its best. Really. I agree. I agree. Streaks on the China never mattered before. Who cares? When you drop kicked your jacket as you came through the door, no one glared. But sometimes things get turned around and no one spared. Look out below, there's a change in the status quo. Gonna need all the help that we can get. According to our new arrival, life is more than mere survival. We just might live a good life yet. We should get into the album Du Jour. So Vince, you pick the album, talk about it for a bit with our listeners. Oh yeah, okay. So I picked um the Weezer's new album. Their the fourth White. self-titled album. Yes, their fourth self-titled album. They've had a a blue one, a green one, a red one, and now a white one. Um which I feel is kind of taboo, don't you? I mean like you yeah. don't you don't do a white album. No, you don't. Um We're going to get into the title in a little bit. Um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so um, what was the last Weezer album that you could say, like, definitively, I bought it and I liked it? Um, oof. Um, Make Believe, I think. Sense is a little whack, and my friends are just as creepy as me. I didn't go to boarding schools, preppy girls never looked at me. Why should they? I ain't nobody got nothing in my pocket. What, 2005 did we decide? I believe that was what we decided, yeah. And and even that has, like... Well, see, that's just it. Like, I probably wouldn't say that I like it today, you know? At the time, you... you... But if you... Yeah, if you're asking me when the last Weezer out, you know, it was make-believe, and I remember listening to it in high school and liking it, and 
riding around in my Cadillac listening to it. You had a Cadillac? Thinking I was cool. I had a couple Cadillacs. (laughs) Whoa. I I didn't realize I had a baller for a a co-host here. One of them had, this is no joke, one of them had leopard print uh, fabric on the ceiling. Did they have suicide doors too? No, I wish. Oh, man. (laughs) That's absolutely true though. Um, Wow. Okay. Yeah, they did not help me at all. <laughs> if, if you're wondering, but but yeah, that's the last album that I can remember um, buying and liking. And then I think like I don't know. I think that was like just the right time for me to like, you know, a year later think like, wow, that that music is actually pretty lame, <laughs> <laughs> like Beverly Hills, you know, yeah. and uh, uh, what else was on there? Um, We are all on drugs. We are all on drugs. I think that was just kind of like the beginning of the end, you know? Yeah. For me, it's the album before that, Maladroit. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it's interesting. So I um, we talked a little bit last week off the air about how much Weezer means to me as a, as a band. And uh, so I would say my disillusion started to creep in around the time of Maladroit. But I felt there were still some really solid songs on there. As soon as Make Believe came out, I mean, there there is still, I think, two or three really good songs on that album. And I think you can probably say that about every Weezer album since. I think there's probably been two or three really good songs per album. But I have not been invested in a batch of songs, you know, up to the... I I would say that the last one that came out, Everything Will Be Alright in the End, I believe that's what it's called, um, was the best of the bunch thus far. Which again is said every single time they release an album. best of the bunch so far but i still didn't like it enough to buy it it was just a purely a streamed listen for me mm-hmm. um we're kind of burying the lead here what did you think of the album um to be honest i didn't um so <laughs> so um i the the last i didn't even listen to everything will be all right in the end 
the, the last album I listened to was Hurley. They just threw a picture of Hurley from Lost on the cover, you know. Well, did like, you hear the rumor about that? Uh, wasn't he supposed to like? Wasn't he supposed to like do background vocals on the album or something like that, or what? I had heard a more sinister oh, rumor, which was that the clothing brand Hurley had paid them to name the album that, but that they didn't want it to come out that that's why it was called Hurley. So they put Jorge Garcia's picture on there <laughs> to mask the fact that it was named after a clothing company. Okay. Well, I don't know if that's true or not. That was just one of the, you know, one of the rumors circulating at the time. Yeah. Well, uh, if that's true, I hate it even more. <laughs> <laughs> Both are pretty bad. I mean, yeah. simply bad reasons to name an album that way. Um, but anyway, that's like that's like when I decided that like Weezer just like stopped trying or like just wasn't this wasn't, you know, was was kind of like a joke band now, you know. Mm-hmm. And actually, the White Album, I'm surprised that I didn't hate it. But there's some songs that I absolutely do hate on it. Yeah. And uh, and I don't think it's gonna be like any kind of like regular listening for me. But I think it's the album. I think it. This is different from what people are saying because some people are saying it's it's the it's the best thing Weezer's released in 15 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just think it's the th- album that finally I can make peace with them as a band. Okay. Like okay, this is what they are now and it's not as terrible as I thought, but it's never going to be what I want it to be again, you know? Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't hate the album, and we'll, we'll get into like some of the songs that I actually think are good, and uh, some that I think are probably the worst songs they've ever written. But um. <laughs> well, okay. So I have a friend named Dylan, and Dylan and I converse a lot about Weezer. And when "Everything Will Be All Right in the End" came out, he went through every Weezer album and he ranked each song on a scale of like one to a hundred. And so, of every single Weezer record, and then like plotted the average score of the songs, and did like a uh, a comparison. Essentially, to his argument, everything will be all right in the end was the third best Weezer album. Okay, which I don't agree with, and I've told him he's crazy in the past. (laughs) But what I said is that to me, a more valid judge of an album's strength is not how good one song is versus the other. Like, in terms of a numerical, this is a 95 or that's a 93. To me, it's a simple thumbs up, thumb 
like horizontal to the ground and thumb down. Like uh-huh. how many good songs, how many eh songs, and how many bad songs. And I think if you look at this album, I put, I think there's more good songs than anything else. This the white album. The white album, yes. Yeah, I think uh... there's five good songs. I think there's two meh songs, and I think there's three bad songs. Okay, I I'd I'd agree somewhere around that. Okay. Um, but ultimately, then I would probably give it the sideways thumb. Okay. If we're doing the the, the thumb rating, you know, Ebert and, and uh, Siskel and Ebert didn't have the sideways thumb. Well, you know, because to me, there's just there are a couple of songs in this album that I think are. They're really not worthy of being called good, <laughs> but they're not devoid of enjoyment enough to be called bad. Yep. <laughs> so this yep. is my way of kind of, you know, splitting that difference. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, yep. Okay. So let's let's just – let's talk about the singles to start because anyone who's listening to this podcast who has enough interest to listen to a music podcast would probably have encountered one of these singles someplace. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the first one – is thank god for girls Ugh. the girl in the pastry shop with the net in her hair is making a cannoli for you to take on your hiking trip in the woods with your bros that you've known since second grade and your main kind of dragons are ruffians and be called upon to employ your testosterone in a battle for supremacy and access to females glued to the tv and even if you are victorious you may receive many cuts bruises and scrapes and you will require band a bad song oh it's bad this is this, this is the, this is what i was alluding to that i haven't heard every weezer song uh-huh. it's my least favorite weezer song oh, it's not it's not my least favorite weezer song on this album oh um, <laughs> but it's it's uh it's pretty bad uh-huh. uh okay so so let's let's just start here okay <laughs> yeah let's it's, let's start low and end high yeah let, let, let's dig in here uh this song is like to me, all right. So if you had to like make a blueprint of a Weezer song in 2016, I feel like the lyrics would be too young for the band singing it. Check, <laughs> but there'd be a weird like quasi spoken word, quasi rapped section of it. Yeah, like a like, hip hop lyrical del- like that's that's in my notes here. Slightly hip hop lyrical delivery. Yeah, like that's a the thing they've done before, and it's sucked yeah. every time they've done it. That's in there. <laughs> Um, where I will slightly defend the song is I think the the chorus is very catchy. Like the song, I don't even know. yeah, the song is stuck in my head. Okay, so I'm not saying it's a good thing. It's just it's, it gets stuck in my head, and I think that the end of the song is unexpected. Like it ends in a place I wouldn't I wouldn't have expected it to when it started. That's not a. I'm not saying the song is good for those reasons. To me, those are the reasons why it's better than one of the other songs on the album. Okay. Um, but let, let's dig in more here. Uh, have you seen the cover to the iTunes single for this song? Uh, 
Uh, I'm going to pull it up right now. I hope it's iTunes. I think it's iTunes. Oh, it's Pope Francis. Yeah, it's, Pope, it's the back of Pope Francis, and it says, Thank God for Girls. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it's, like it's like the lamest joke I could think of. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. not a good joke. I, you know, if it was a good joke, it's good for them, having a funny little thing on there. It's not that funny. No, it's not. But I think I feel like that's a recurring theme in like late Weezer. Well, you know, not, so okay, so not I, that funny. Yeah, I just listened to a podcast. There's a really good. If you're looking for a podcast to listen to the weeks that we don't release an episode, everybody should listen to Stephen Hyden's new podcast, Celebration Rock. It's quite good. And he had Chuck Klosterman on this week, and they were talking about Weezer. And Chuck Klosterman posits the idea that Rivers Cuomo doesn't understand irony, and that everything that he does that he thinks is funny, he thinks is funny for unironic reasons. And so, like, he does it. he's not putting a picture of the Pope on there because he thinks it's ironic and funny. He thinks it's just plain funny. And he, they were saying, like, you know, the cover of the Red Album has him in a cowboy hat with a mustache. And how, like, he there's no irony in that presentation. That's just like, this is a funny thing. <laughs> and that's really weird to me. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, this song is it's not good. It's not good at all. It's such a simplistic idea, and it talks about buying a cannoli for a hike, which, like, who, who in the history of the world has ever done, got done with a hike and be like, you know, I need some fine Italian pastry to, to wash down this hike. Like, nobody does that. Well, maybe me, but I'm a one percenter in that regard, so <laughs> maybe, he is, maybe he is speaking to me. Yeah. Maybe this is my favorite Weezer song. <laughs> it has no, that, it's it has really a weird, like, piano part in it. Yeah. I don't know. Just really dumb lyrics and like really like you know what it reminded me of? What's that? It it's it's almost like perfectly designed to be a like mid 2010s like pop rock crossover because it's got that like hip hop lyrical delivery and like dumb lyrics about um, about like girls and the internet or something like I don't even know what he's talking about, but like it just reminds me of like um, uh, <laughs> who's that guy with with red hair that's like um popular on pop rock radio now? Um, Ed Sheeran. Yeah, thank you. Like it's like his like lame hip hop delivery, but it's super popular for some reason. You know, see, I was gonna um, say to me, it sounds like, like that's just apparently that's just something that gets you on the radio. Yeah, Go ahead. A, to me, it just sounds like uh, like a scene from a movie about like high school kids, and they like they they walk into like cheerleading practice, and this <laughs> is the uh, the montage playing. Like there's a montage with this song, and they're all like, "Oh damn!" Like. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? Yes. <laughs> like, yep. Uh, and that just seems like exactly what it what it would be. Um, yeah, you're right. You're right. It's um, bad. Can we, can we talk about that for a second? Because sure. Um, something we I, we said off air, I think, last week was, or what I said was, maybe the problem with Weezer is that we just don't like. I just don't want to hear like a middle aged Rivers Cuomo singing even like the old good songs like mm -hmm. like you know undone like maybe i just don't want to see this middle-aged man singing these songs anymore and they're they're still doing the same thing like they're still writing songs about girls you know 
Right. But this is like a 40-something-year-old man. Right. You know? Like... I don't necessarily disagree with that. Um, again, I, yeah. To, to keep plugging Haydn's podcast, he talks about how he is at the age now that like people would have been in the late 80s when the Beach Boys released Kokomo. How like <laughs> Beach Boys fans from the 60s are the same like we would be like in their late 30s early 40s when Kokomo came out and that's how old he was when this came out. He, he realizes there's like a very, very strong correlation there. How like this is a band that was that, that for a brief period of time sort of captured the 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 attention of youth culture, and this is them twenty years later trying to recapture it again. Right, but that, at least the Beach Boys had John Stamos at that the time, is true. who you thought would take you to Kokomo. Well, you I, know, I mean, I hoped he would. <laughs> you know, I mean, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> He is that sweet Greek yogurt money now. Yep, yep, yep. We're not going on the cheap, man. We're going to get there fast and we're going to take it slow. um, But I actually think that the Beach Boys are an interesting touchstone for this album because this is very much a a California album. Yes. Uh, it, it, It very much tries to be. And I've spent a little bit of time in California, but not nearly enough to be able to be the authority and say, yes, this is a California album. But, you know, that's certainly there's a song called California Kids. There's a song called L.A. Girls. You know, there, there, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of Cal- Southern California in this album. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's a bad muse for him to go off on in general. Um, but I do want to talk about the song titles for a second here, because I, I gave Esperanza Spaulding some shit for bad titles a few weeks ago. I was going to bring that up. Honestly. Yeah, well, see, I'm a man of my word, and I understand, you know, uh, my, my place in in this show. And, you know, like, I, my favorite song on the album is L.A. Girls. I think it's a really good song. It sounds yeah. a lot like Suzanne, and it sounds a lot like Holiday, like older Weezer songs. But they had to spell girls with a Z. Right. Like, that's dumb. Uh, yeah. Thank God for Girls is a dumb song title. Endless Bummer, another not bad song with a terrible title. Uh, <laughs> Summer Elaine and Drunk Dory. I mean, uh-huh. uh, and and then I think the song title that's the maybe the worst, but is one of the best songs in the album is Do You Want to Get High? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Like when you when you read that title, you're like, oh, Tolly from South Park. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Now I'm 
But I do. I think that's the best song on the album too. I, uh... And supposedly it's about when he and a girlfriend were really into prescription drugs. Like it's a it's a real story. Yeah. Oh, and, imagine that. And like, well, like, exactly. That shouldn't be crazy. In tw- you know, with the Weezer album, but it is. Yeah. It's absolutely. I mean, unless crazy. unless he really did uh, have a girl that made a cannoli for him and then shoved it in his mouth. Yeah. In I her mean... sweaty overalls. Yeah. Yep. Ugh. Yep. But yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good song. I would say that 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 is a song that I could imagine myself listening to, you know, over and over. Yeah. Um, it's I, probably the most Weezer song on the album, don't you think? I mean, I'd say that one and "L.A. Girls" are the two most Weezer ones. Yeah, yeah, um, but those, and the two sides of the the two sides of Weezer. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Clear standouts. I think "Endless Bummer" is a nice little song. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, you, you called it a bad song earlier. I think that uh, was... I called it a bad title earlier. Yeah. Well, I yeah. think you. I think you accidentally said. Oh, bad I, song. I, I didn't mean to. No, I think it's a good song. Yeah, yeah. I thought so too. I was gonna say, but. I... Yeah, I mean, again, there are some dumb lyrics in there, but again, as my friend Dylan will always tell me, like the first song any of us ever heard by Weezer. Had this had the line, I'd love to see you there lying in your Superman skivvies. So like yeah. anything we say about bad lyrics, like that's that's part of the package here. You know, you're not gonna divorce right. yourself from that for the most part. Um, and then I think there's there's a couple more that are okay. I think um, Summer Elaine and Drunk Dory, despite the title, is is actually a pretty good song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that uh, Girl We Got a Good Thing has nice moments. As that, the, that is a very Beach Boys yes. song. Girl, Absolutely. we got a good thing. You know where this is heading. Uh-huh. Just a couple of birds. Happy to be singing. Uh-huh. Girl, we got a good thing. And I don't see this Again, there's a couple of crazy lyrics in yes. there. Smiling like a couple of Krishnas or something. Yes, like exactly. Yeah. Well, like, like, no thanks. No, but... no thank you. Um, <laughs> and then I think that the first song, California Kids, has some has some nice moments too. I wouldn't say that's a good song. To no. me, that that falls into the the okay category. Yeah, you know, something that I thought was that it sounds like a song that Weezer can just 
toss off in their sleep. Yes, you know? like, yes. Co-written with the guy from Semisonic, by the way. Oh, okay. Uh, in case you were curious. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's just a trite. It's a trite song, you know. It's it not, is. It's not. It's not bad, but it's just you know just that very classic chugging sort of pop punk song. Uh, song. Yeah. Just something that they easily do all the time. You know, except I will say I really like the little acoustic guitar and Glockenspiel introduction. <laughs> to, to me, that that sounds very reminiscent of like Pink Triangle or one of those uh, yeah. Pinkerton tracks. Do you think it's a real Glockenspiel? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> doesn't matter. Probably not. But you know, in my what, heart what, of hearts, I like to believe it is. What's um, your least favorite song on this thing? Jacked up. Really? Oh, that's so bad. <laughs> that might be my least favorite. I mean, Heart Songs. Is a, do you know that Weezer song? The, yes. The terrible Weezer song. That might be my least favorite Weezer song. Gordon Lightfoot sang a song about a boat that sank in the lake at the break of the morning. A cat named Stevens found a faith he could believe in. And Joan Baez, I never listened to too much jazz. But hippie songs could be good in our pad. Eddie Rabbit sang about how much he loved a rainy night. And the Devo Benatar were there the day John Lennon died. Mr. Springsteen said he had a hungry heart. Over Washington was happy on the day he taught the chart. These are the songs. These are my heart songs. But jacked up is pretty close. Um, Interesting, because I I just I ultimately found that extremely forgettable. Oh no, it has that terrible like falsetto chorus. Uh huh. Like, <laughs> That's so bad. Oh, really, really I think it's not necessarily as bad lyrically as Thank God for Girls. Yeah. But to me, it's instrumentally like, and melodically, it's much, much worse. Okay. Um, you know, that's that's a really, really bad song, if you ask me. I think that that and Thank God for Girls could make the all-time worst Weezer record list. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, which is... yeah. I see, Again, I'm I'm writing a big piece I still haven't finished about about Weezer and about the expectations involving Weezer, and I feel like part of the problem with this band is that Pinkerton is an album that it seems so honest, even though he's talking about like you know ECW wrestling, <laughs> and uh, you know he's talking about. Like you know, Green Day and like you know stupid shit like that. It just feels very very real, 
And I feel like there are few moments on this album that feel real to me. And I think there have been few moments on any Weezer record since then that have felt real. And maybe that's my biggest critique of the band post post Pinkerton, is that everything seems very generic. Mm -hmm. Even the good stuff seems generic. Yeah. Um, Like like we already mentioned, that uh, uh, Do You Want to Get High song. Mm -hmm. The the reason why it's such a good song is that it's honest, right? Right. Or at least it feels like it is. Yeah. But nothing about Rivers Cuomo singing about, like, taking a girl to the Galapagos Islands on a Greyhound bus somehow. Oh, that's that song is rough, too. Oh, Wind yeah. Wind in our sail. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. So... Weezer piece by numbers. <laughs> We're like, okay, silly reference here, and you know, uh, sort of smart reference here, and you know, just it's it's bad. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's the difference between those two, like sides of Weezer, right? Yeah. Like, like worried only that he could write a full album that was like honest like that, you know, or at least felt like, you know, it was based in some sort of reality. Well, that's kind of the reason why I like LA girls too. Like the first lyric is LA girls, please act your age. Uh And I feel like that could be an observation of a guy in his forties walking around Los Angeles. Like it's, it's not a profound statement, but that seems like, okay, maybe he was, you know, trying to get a burrito and there were these, you know, middle-aged women acting like teenagers, and he goes, "Oh, you know, fucking L.A. girls, or whatever the case may be." Like that's that could be a thing that happens. And I as, would, as, I tri- would uh, as trite as that is, it's better than anything else, you know. It is, but I would argue that he should take some of his own advice. <laughs> well, that's the irony here: is that you know, like, listen to "Thank God for Girls" and tell me that sounds like a middle-aged man wrote that song. <laughs> I mean, it does. It sounds like a middle-aged man trying to sound young. Yeah, wrote that song. Right. It sounds like you know, what are the kids these days like? Yeah. Um you know, on that same note, I I uh I found this quote about we we again we talked about this last week, but uh I found this quote about Rivers Cuomo that he uh had a bulging notebook ripe with mathematical equations for the perfect pop song. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something that I heard about Weezer and about him around the time that Make Believe came out. Mm-hmm. And I thought, like, you know, there's this band that made the Blue Album and Pinkerton, and that is not them at all, like, in my mind. Right. Yeah, they made some very catchy songs back then, too, that had really good hooks. But that, like, to hear that he's just trying to develop this like perfect pop hook or like the perfect pop song really kind of like disillusioned me. You know, it was like, 
It's like that's not what I want to hear from from any artist other than somebody who is admittedly making like manufactured pop music well, on, you know, pur- on purpose. And maybe that's what he was doing, but that's not what Weezer was to me. Right, you know? right. Um, you know, in in his defense, and I'm not defending him here, but I guess to play devil's <laughs> advocate here, you know, maybe this is like you know the equivalent of like learning a recipe exactly so that you can then divert from the recipe. You know, like, if you know these are the elements that make something interesting, okay, but what if we take this and we turn it on its side? And so, you know, so if he was using that formula and then fucking with the formula, I'd be all for it. Right. But that's not what he's doing here. Or not no. here. I think this is probably the least formulaic Weezer album in a very long time, and that's that's just something about this album, that it says more about the albums that preceded it. Um, yes, that's true. But I, I also think that there are clear, like ear sores on this album that mm-hmm. were clearly meant to be like, okay, this is going to be the dumb song that everybody likes. That's going to get radio play because it sounds like, you know, it's, it's the same way that Beverly Hills was, you know, right. <laughs> like, right. like it's just going to be a dumb, uh, trite song with like a big guitar solo at the end. <laughs> right. You know, well, what's interesting is, I was looking at the songwriting credits earlier today, and there's three songs that were written by Cuomo by himself. Uh, Girl, We Got a Good Thing, Do You Want to Get High, and Summer Early and Drunk Dory. there's two that he co-wrote with guitar player Brian Bell, who's been in the band since the Blue Album. And both of the Bell co-writes, L.A. Girls and Endless Bummer, are also, there's a guy named Luther Russell who writes with them. And so, supposedly, I'm doing the, uh, I looked on Wikipedia before, and he um, he used to play with Jacob Dylan in a pre-Wallflowers band, and he... Um, he was in a band called the Freewheelers, which I'm not familiar with. But, you know, but he's, he seems like a, a guy, like an L.A. session guy who probably has a lot of, like, songwriting credits on other people's records, right? But those those five songs, to me, like, without question, those are the five best songs on the album. And then uh-huh. all the other songs he writes with song doctors, like Dan Wilson from Semisonic, who got a Grammy for a fucking <laughs> Adele album. You know, uh, <laughs> and there are guys on the record who are like one of the guys who co-wrote Jacked Up is like a like a dance producer, and it just you can just <laughs> see it in the songwriting credits. Okay, here these five songs were written by members of the band or they're like pals, and you know whatever. And then these five songs are Rivers Cuomo chasing something that isn't necessarily the same. 
Now, I think that California right. Kids works better than the other ones work um, in terms uh-huh. of, like, you know, an okay song. I think both Wind on Our Sail and King of the World sound incredibly uh, overdone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, like, trying to manufacture a hit oh, very, very we- much so. Wind in Our Sail is one of those, like, just dumb like everything is gonna be all right yeah pop songs that's really popular right now like you know like like we're we're gonna conquer the world type shit you know right. yeah <laughs> like, and i i have no place for that in my life <laughs> yeah no 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 I, I i want the sad bastard yeah um and 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 maybe that's the other thing you know one of the things that i've read about cuomo a lot and uh I think he actually fluctuates on this, is that Pinkerton is the worst thing that ever happened to him. You know, um, when I first saw Weezer, and I I told you last week I was going to tell this story, so I skipped my third ever day of college to take a Greyhound bus from Pittsburgh to Cleveland to go see Weezer play. Now, Weezer released Pinkerton in 96, toured through 97, and then disappeared. And this was the summer of 2000. And... Uh, all of my friends were back at home and they were all going to see Weezer together and I couldn't go with them. So I went by myself and I actually met some friends there that I'm still talking to to this day that we just met outside the venue and kind of hung out and talked. But anyway, uh, it was the first time that Weezer had toured since Pinkerton came out and they did a set that was like 50-50 Blue Album Pinkerton with a couple of B-sides and then in the middle they did like four new songs that some of them went up on the blue al- on the green album, some of them went up on Maladroit, and some of them still haven't been released. But I want to say it was right after they did El Scorcho or The Good Life, Rivers asked the crowd, do you like Pinkerton? And the whole crowd cheered, and he went, yeah, me too. Like, <laughs> it was very much like a real moment of him saying, like, yeah, I like that album, fuck the haters. But then you see him basically go back on that all the time, and I think he fluctuates between, like, that was the best thing I ever did, and that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. And that's got to be really hard, actually. Sure. Because he, he put his heart out there for people, and it was initially rejected. You know, 10 years later, it was, it's, you know, it's inc- 20 years later, it's incredibly celebrated. But, you know, I don't think you want to live through the low to get to the high eventually. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's got to be tough. Yeah. So I don't know if... The reaction to that made him say, "Like, well, fuck it. I'm not gonna put my heart on the sleeve on my sleeve my sleeve anymore. This is it. You know, this is they're gonna get these songs that don't mean nearly as much to me to me as those songs did because I can't bear the pain of those songs being of these new songs being rejected in the way those old ones were." Yeah. Oh, you make me want to cry, Brian Salvatore. I don't know. I mean, it's just a theory. I don't know if that's true or not, but <laughs> yeah, you know, I could see it. Uh, it, was there anything on the album that surprised you? Um, no, no. I think that's the. I mean, other than I was surprised I didn't hate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't think I don't think they'll do anything that surprises me ever again. You know, don't you get that feeling? Like, yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Are Are there many bands for you that? have been around 20 plus years that are still surprising you? No, no, I don't think so. I, I, I have a theory 
that I don't talk about a whole lot because like people get mad at me. <laughs> but like I have a theory that like basically bands have probably used up all their inspiration by like year 10, right. you know? And even then that's like pushing it. That's generous. You know? you know, yeah. I think the I think like one modern band that kind of bucks that well, and I can think of two, and they're kind of related, but, like, The National is a band that's been around for more than 10 years, I think, now, mm-hmm. and they're still finding, like, ways to be interesting and surprising. We'll stay inside somebody finds us, do whatever the TV tells us, stay inside our Like, Sufjan has been around for longer than that. think solo artists don't count in this argument okay i that's that's fair at least that that, that's for me there's a difference there no i understand yeah i understand that yep yep i I would argue that radiohead is still doing interesting stuff yes i would agree with that too because i'm a huge fan of the king of limbs
that's actually one of my favorite Radiohead albums. Like, it might even be my second or third favorite wow. of theirs, which that's, is crazy. High praise. But, yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> but I, I lo- oh man, when that came out, I listened the hell out of that album. Uh, but I, you know, I wonder, I wonder how much of that is just, um, Tom York's like, like I felt like King of Limbs was, it felt like a solo album almost. I could see that. I mean, I don't know. I, I can't say that with any knowledge of like what those other guys do or did on it, you know, but it just sounds so much like a, um, like a a Nork record. Yeah. Or or like, I was going to say like a laptop project, you know, like him just tooling away with like beats and stuff, you know, um, it's a really different, they keep reinventing themselves, which like most bands don't do after 10 years, you know? I also think that there's there are bands out there that don't necessarily reinvent themselves, but manage to do something similar and make it interesting. And I think a band like Wilco is still... I, I don't think Wilco's ever put out a bad album. the candle to their old albums in terms of innovation yeah and see i i would say that their last two or three albums haven't really done much for me at all so they'd be like you know they wouldn't be an exception to my rule okay that's fair disagree on that i'm trying to think of anybody else that is an active band i don't know it's so rare like i just think (laughs) <laughs> I try not to sound like ageist or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, but I just really do feel that like at a certain point in your life, if you're a musician or whatever, you run out of the inspiration that made those like incredible albums earlier in your career, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes it takes you a few albums to hit that stride, you know, right. like not saying everyone is great right off the bat and then they, decline in inspiration you know but like unless something happens to you later in your career that really affects your creative process or like your emotions or whatever like i I just feel like it's hard to generate or or like cull anything out of the stuff that you used in those first 10 years we'll say you know well that's why i think that all the artists that i really enjoy you know, 20, 30 years into their careers are bands that bands are artists that have changed up those inspirations. Sure. Or that have found a new way of doing things. And I think that those artists tend to, unless you're Paul McCartney, those (laughs) artists or David Bowie, I guess, um, those artists tend to not be as popular 
at the end of their lives as they were at their peak, you know? Um, yeah. Someone like, I, I'm a huge fan of Jonathan Richman. And like the first Jonathan Richman Modern Lovers album is like a proto-punk album. And then he threw that away and went into like cutesy pop. And now he sings songs in foreign languages. Es el momento. What we want is the moment. We don't want the past. We want the moment. Just como el viento. Just like the wind. Como el pan. Just like bread. Just like bread. It's gotta be fresh. Even a day old is getting to be too much. Lo que queremos debe de ser del día. Calor se enfría. El pasado mejor no encarcelarnos. Right, the past, it's better if it don't imprison us. Lo que queremos es lo de hoy. And, like, you know, he just does different things. And I feel like if you're willing to take such big risks and do different things, well, then there's interest there. You know, even someone like Neil Young, you know, who's done vastly different things. Those those artists excite me because I never quite know what I'm getting when I put on one of their albums. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, to me, is the ultimate sin of the White Album. Not the Beatles' White Album, obviously, but the... Uh, <laughs> You know, the White Album, the Weezer record, because I feel like it's um, it's an album that just can't help but it can't help but fall beneath your expectations. Yeah. Well, it keeps going back to the same well, you know? Yeah. It's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know. It's it's. It's still this same, like, trite, I mean, half of it is still the same, like, trite, kind of dorky, too young for its creator's uh, sound, you know, that they've been peddling for 10 years now. Right. And it's, it's, yeah, Do, do you want to get high sounds like the one thing that, like, anyone was truly inspired to write, you know, rather than let's, uh, let's, okay, let's write a song about California now, you know? Right. (laughs) Um, I don't know if we want to get too deep into this or even if we're going to be able to get too deep into this, but like, so let, let's pretend that, you know, a year passes and a press release comes out that Weezer's new album is coming out. Oh, it's the it's the best thing they've done in sixteen years. Uh, of course it is, yeah. Um, but like, yeah. So you get you get an, an an early listen to the album. What what is like your greatest hope from hearing that album? Like, is it is it just? Does it sound like one of their old records? Does it sound like nothing they've ever done before? Like, what what is the? Because th- this is a question I have. Like, what is? We all bitch about Weezer, me being the prime culprit here. But what do we really want from a Weezer album? I want uh I don't I don't I don't need them to, to go back. I don't need Rivers to go back and make Pinkerton again, you know? Mm-hmm. Cause I don't think it's possible. It's cer- certainly not. I just this is what my hope would be, because half of these half of the songs on this album are like acceptable. If you gave me a whole album of those songs, that's 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 what I want. I I want this is my hope for any future Weezer album. Just 
don't do those songs with like the dumb, <laughs> like just the stupidest lyrics, like, and don't do like the cheesy, like be Rivers Cuomo. Don't do this like cheesy rap singing or like throw a cheesy part in here because it's funny or different or like someone's going to hear it on the radio and go, oh, what's that Weezer song with like the weird part in it or whatever. Like, you know, that don't. Is don't that your make... honest hope or is that like your pie in the sky? My My honest hope would be to just stay away from those like three or four dumb ass songs. But is that the best you can imagine for Weezer? Yes. It really is at this point. Okay. Which is not, you know, 20 years into a career, that's not terrible, you know? Like I said, I think I've come to terms with, like, the 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 average Weezer song is going to be very average. Okay. You know, Do You Want to Get High is, like, that might be the best Weezer song I've heard in 10 years or something. Mm-hmm. You know, but it I don't certainly th- is for me. I don't think they have a a whole album of that in them. You know, interesting. O- otherwise, I think we'd get more of it. You know, that's like one song that's like like yes, there are five good songs on on here, but that's one song that like is head and shoulders above everything else to me. You know, one but, of the things it, that I try and think about sometimes is like where what which of these songs would fit into a Weezer set list well. And I feel like, do you want to get high in L.A. Girls especially? I wouldn't. I don't think the average fan would get up and get a beer if those songs come up during the Weezer's upcoming, you know, amphitheater tour. Yeah. But thank God for girls, I'm getting up and getting a beer at that point. You know, the, uh, to me, it just doesn't. It doesn't even come close to their their height. You know. The, yeah. The, and uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's like uh, you know my true hope for Weezer. I don't know if my true hope looks more like something you said or if just something totally unexpected came out from them. I don't think that's you know what? I could see I could see Rivers doing something with a side project or by himself. Mm-hmm. That's different, but I don't think Weezer as a band I think Weezer as a band is a brand now. Don't you? Like it's going to be Maybe? this. It's going to be this. Like if 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 you hear Weezer on the radio, and they're always going to try to get like three or four radio hits off of an album, at least some. You know, they released five singles ahead of this album. I know. What yeah. You mean. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And it's always going to be this like big crunchy. Like there's probably going to be a big guitar solo in it. And there's going to be like a silly or like, it's just going to be dumb. You know, it's going to be like aiming to be a dumb radio pop song. And that's a brand for them now. You know, just this like slightly nerdy, like too, too, too young, too immature for like their age. And that's what they're going to go for every time. Like hopefully he's got some inspiration to do some like different sort of project but it's i don't think it's going to be with weezer i don't think it can be i think i think weezer blew up because of make-believe you know Mm -hmm. and that 
that has been a driving force ever since, and it's been 10 years. I don't okay, see anything maybe, changing it now. Here is my counter to that, and then we should probably wrap up this conversation. Um, okay. My counter to that is I think we see Weezer as a brand because we no longer identify with what Weezer is. I don't know if the 18-year-old buying music today thinks about Weezer's brand as much as we do. I think they expect something out of Weezer. Do they? I think so. Like, I think, like, okay, so did did you hear about that, like, cruise? Like, the Weezer, Weezer cruise? Yeah, the yeah. Weezer cruise. Like, the idea of Weezer hosting a ocean cruise. <laughs> like, but that's that for is guys exactly our age. Is it? Yes, it is. That is that uh, is for that is for guys specifically my age who have disposable income now because we're we have better jobs than we did when we were in high school. That is absolutely meant for me and you and not meant for anyone young. So then do 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 guys like you and me actually like what Weezer's doing right now? I don't think it see that's that's where I think this is important. I think that doesn't matter at all. So you you think the we just See the the the. the <laughs> this is what I mean when I say like br- uh, the brand, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Weezer to me no longer means the Blue Album or Pinkerton. Those are outliers now. Weezer to me is this big dumb W, and like a nerd on stage, popping off. Crappy dumb pop rock singles. <laughs> Okay, you know? but, okay, but but let me let me just counter that. Now I know sure. that the record industry is different than it was twenty years ago, but in the United States, the Blue Album sold three point three million copies. How many do you think in the U.S. Pinkerton has sold to date? Pinkerton? Yeah. Well, I I would I guess it's less than that, but I don't know. Eight hundred and fifty thousand. Okay. Hasn't still hasn't gone platinum. Sure. Maybe the most well-reviewed album of the late '90s. That and OK Computer are probably neck and neck. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Green album, one point six million. Maladroit, so, six hundred thousand. So what you're saying is that like real Weezer fans, Pinkerton's not even their favorite album. We're we're gonna get there. I think that's true. Okay. Make believe, one point two million. Okay. Now here's where it gets really interesting. Red album, four hundred forty thousand. Ratitude, 220,000. Hurley, 135,000. Everything will be all right in the end, 100,000. They're not selling enough to have a brand right now. Then, then why do I hear them like, uh, like, why are they on the radio? Because who programs the radio? Uh, the New World Order? No, it's, it's, it's guys like us. It's, oh. you know, it's, it's totally out of nostalgia. And I'm sure that there's some greasing the pockets of the DJs and that sort of thing. I, I think that there's a large business behind Weezer doing well. But I also think that the Weezer machine and Rivers Cuomo's songwriting, while they might work in tandem, I don't think they're necessarily the same thing. I'm really confused then. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I've spoken to Rivers a couple of times. Uh, as a fan, not like not in any sort of journalistic capacity, but he's incredibly bizarre. Okay. Um, like really, really socially awkward, really, really shy, 
But like, so they did this thing on the Maladroit tour where if you signed up and you had recording equipment, you could bootleg their shows. Uh-huh. And so I had signed up and I recorded f- four shows on that. No, I, one on the Green Album tour, three on the uh, Maladroit tour. And at that time, there would be a hundred wristbands that Rivers would give out every night for fans to come backstage and play foosball with him. Now, I, they trusted me enough to bootleg their shows, but they would, by rule, not give the guy bootlegging the show a wristband. Because, and this is what a, a, somebody in the Weezer camp told me, Rivers thinks anybody that wants to bootleg their shows is a loser. Okay. Okay. In an interview in a guitar magazine... Uh, pardon my French here, he said all of my fans are little f- Like, he is a really, really weird guy who I think has some legitimate social, not just like, look, I- I'm socially awkward as the next guy. I think there's like something really there in terms of his, his, uh, his personality. And I think that sometimes, I think he is way more sincere than we give him credit for. But I think nobody else around him is. Okay. Which and is not so, a great. So he's he's place being to be. enabled, is what you're saying, kind of. Yeah, I think he is being enabled, but I think he's being enabled by people whose intentions aren't necessarily evil; they're just capitalistic. Right. Well, capitalism is the ultimate evil, Brian. Right. Thanks, comrade. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but you understand what I'm saying. It's just. They're so fascinating. To, to me, we could do it. I could host a Weezer podcast. We're going to talk about Weezer every week. Let's do it. No. Input Output is now a Weezer podcast. No, our dozens of fans wouldn't like that. Okay. Um, well, they're all little. No. That's, <laughs> yeah. I would never say that. I know you wouldn't. Uh, anything else you want to say about this album? Um, You, you kind of made me hate it a little more just now and i like the album (laughs) (laughs) no it's okay i wouldn't say i wouldn't say i like it i'd say it's very much a sideways thumb which is more than i expected out of them in in the year of our lord 2016 Uh so um i think it's got some legitimately good songs um i i just wish they'd stay away from that that dumber manufactured stuff that they like to do Mm -hmm. i agree with that i honestly because because i kind of fell out of touch with them i honestly didn't know that they had like what this was their 10th album i believe 10th album that's crazy like (laughs) (laughs) like i thought it was more like seven uh let's see i legitimately forgot about ratitude this is their 10th studio album, but they have released an album in 2010 called Death to False Metal that yeah. was a compilation of like unreleased songs, and people count that sometimes. So this is their 10th or 11th album, depending how it's, we're counting it. I, I totally forgot about Ratitude and Hurley when we were having this discussion last week. Okay. And then, like, I guess I, I forgot about Maladroit, except that you mentioned it last week, and then I remembered it. So, like, really, I thought this was, like, their seventh album or something. <laughs> and then I looked at the list, and I'm like, holy shit, you know? Yeah. This is a hard album to pair, because I have so much personally invested in Weezer 
that I find it, it's it's hard to compare them to other bands. But I just wanted to go with other albums that had the word white in the title that wasn't the white album. Okay. White Wilderness by John Vanderslice. Oh. Uh, are you familiar with John Vanderslice? I'm I'm familiar with him. I don't know that I know the album, but uh, it's an album recorded with a a small orchestral ensemble. Okay. All right, get folks pause the podcast and we'll join you again in just a moment. In the uh, week or so since we've recorded, a lot's happened, actually. Uh, we lost Prince, sadly, although I, I know uh, Vince is blaming himself because he, <laughs> uh, just a few weeks ago, said some not-so-kind things about Prince on the podcast. So I, I don't blame you, buddy. Don't worry about it. I, that uh, do, we, do we really have to start like this? <laughs> <laughs> no, we let, me ju- let me just say... That it was very cool to see. So I live in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. It was very cool to see an entire city uh, mourn him. And actually, they're still mourning him. Um, the current, I think, is still playing nothing but Prince. Um, I predicted that that would go on for a month. So we'll see. Uh, uh, we have <laughs> we have a Sirius XM in our car, and there is a whole Prince tribute station right now. So nice. Yeah, nice. Which is is quite nice for me. I actually think it's interesting because and I think this um this does bear discussion uh on a music show, but I think that the reaction to Prince's death has been even more extreme than the reaction to Bowie's death. Yeah. And I don't know exactly why that is. Um I, I would say that Bowie's shadow looms larger simply because of the longevity of his career. And I think that like there's this weird like descending order of fame like if you were famous in the 60s and 70s you will always be more famous than somebody famous in the 80s like i don't know really how that works but i really do right. believe that mm-hmm. yet i think that the reaction to prince's death has been much stronger do you agree i i do but but living in minneapolis crowds uh, clouds that a little i think um i don't That's really fair. have a i don't really have a sense of how the world or the or the greater United States is handling it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think one thing. This this is kind of what I think. I think Prince 
has more of a connection to or more of an influence on um, modern pop music okay. than, than Bowie did. Um, I mean, Bowie's influences are everywhere, but I think they tend to leak more out into the alternative side of things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um even though he was a very popular musician in his own right, you know, whereas, yeah, I definitely did. I definitely agree with that. Yeah. I just think, I just think, you know, you're seeing a lot of, you're seeing pop icons who were directly influenced by Prince in a very specific way. Whereas, um, I, I feel like when Bowie died, a lot of these same icons were, were, speaking more in generalities about him you know Mm -hmm. like you can tell it's very personal because prince was popular when they were kids or when they were you know whatever and uh and and bowie was a little bit before that Um, i also think that there's there's i mean although i'd say prince certainly has a diverse sound there is it's easier to pinpoint prince's influence yeah. And Bowie's because Bowie's influence from record to record changed so much. And I think for people like, you know, there are people who grew up with MTV in the early 80s and those people think of Bowie and they hear Let's Dance, whereas folks grew up with Bowie on AM radio with with Space Oddity. You know, it's just there's such different ways of taking in Bowie, whereas there's more of a universal way people found Prince, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And and And... But that's not to say that I mean, like Prince influenced hip hop and pop music, and um, I'm sure he influenced uh, guitar. Pl- plenty of guitar players along the way that Absolutely. ended up in rock music. You know, um, yeah. I, I it's interesting because both he and Bowie had a certain mister an air of mystery around them that is not common anymore. You know, both of them, I think, had private lives that were quite different than what people perhaps envisioned their private lives to be. But there's something about Prince living in Minneapolis and I think having a relatively... Keeping keeping a connection to a relatively small city that also... I, I feel like Minneapolis is mourning Prince in a way that New York could never mourn Bowie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I think that's. Um... <laughs> I saw somebody wrote a think piece saying uh, Minnesota has lost its identity. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I would go that far, but but I know what they mean, because like when you think of, of Minnesota music, you don't think of Bob Dylan, even though he grew up here and you don't think of. Um, you know, other bands. You don't think of uh, the replacements necessarily because they kind of flamed out before they should have. You right. know, mm-hmm. but Prince is like an icon who was very much. He embraced. The, the other thing is that like <laughs> other artists that that make it big don't necessarily embrace Minnesota or like or stay. Or stay and talk about it all the time and whatever, you know, and whereas Prince stayed and became an institution, you know, and, and put First Avenue on the map, you know, and, um, and, and yeah, you don't get that. And he did it for decades, you know? Yeah. 
when so, when Bruce Springsteen dies, <laughs> New Jersey will feel the way that Minnesota feels today. The the Meadowlands are gonna creep up and swallow the, the <laughs> everything. Yeah. Yes. That like, is exactly what will happen. Yeah, that's gonna be. Oof. <laughs> that's gonna be big. Yeah, uh, especially because I don't think that there's any place in the United States, perhaps that is more shit on the New Jersey. <laughs> and so Springsteen being from Jersey was like everybody, like when I was growing up, everybody who would shit on New Jersey wouldn't shit on Springsteen. Like he was, <laughs> you know, he was the exception to the rule sure. until the Sopranos came around and then organized crime became the exception <laughs> to the rule. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there, there's just something to be said for those those underdog places and I wouldn't say Minneapolis is necessarily an underdog place, but it's a smaller city, you know, and and I think that, yeah. that the city took a lot of pride and identity from Prince being a part of it. And so, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, do, I also think it's really cool to see so many people be unabashedly fans of somebody. Like, the same thing happened when Bowie died. Yeah. But, you know, like, I think there's just so much cynicism on the internet, especially everybody's kind of a punchline until something like this happens. And then all of a sudden you get to see people's legitimate love for a a performer. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoy that. Um, It makes the, I don't want to make this sound like maudlin or anything because, you know, but it makes like the grieving process. I don't mean grieving as in like, this was a close family member. Right. Right. Sitting Shiva for, you know, Um, uh, but but like seeing that happen it it makes you you know in one scroll down your timeline you can laugh you can be sad again mm-hmm. you can see something cool you've never seen before you know that <laughs> this is going to sound morbid but that's what's so cool about death in the year <laughs> 2016 yeah because all this stuff gets unearthed whereas like i was thinking about this the other day because of prince but like you know, when Elvis died, or even like John Lennon, like yeah, it was huge news. But you had to go to like his memorial, where the, like all the fans were tossing flowers and photos and things like that. You know, right? To like really experience the so the like grieving of a nation, or I guess your like neighbor. You know, <laughs> like if you're talking to your neighbor and you're like, yeah, that's a bummer. You know. But now you get that memorial experience like through the internet from like seriously famous people that lived and worked with him, you know? Right. It's it's incredible. It and it it's selfishly it it makes the process for people like us who are just fans really rewarding, you know. Um yeah. obviously, obviously you wouldn't trade that for having him be alive. Right, but, right. Uh, but it's just it's amazing to watch that wave happen. Yeah, I um I remember being in sixth grade and having my friend Jeff call me to tell me that Kurt Cobain had died, and putting on MTV News and you know I got I got all of my breaking news from Kurt Loder and Tabitha Soren <laughs> or whatever, but you know it was um, Kennedy Kennedy yeah there was a uh, there was a sort of understanding at that moment that like. Okay, everything's going to change now. But again, you weren't seeing his contemporaries tweeting out like, "Oh shit, Kurt's gone." 
you know? And I feel like there was still a certain hierarchy of, of witnessing people's grief and people's feelings. Like certainly, you know, there wasn't 24 hour news the way there was now either. So you couldn't turn on CNN and see Eddie Vedder interview necessarily. It just wasn't happening. And so in some ways, I think it both humanizes the process, you know, it humanizes, we get to see, like you said before, actual people dealing with actual grief in this, but it also, I think, raises awareness, like, I was out to dinner with some friends on Saturday night, and one of my friends said, you know, like, you know, I like the few Prince songs that I know, but I really can't name that many, and I was like, that's not true, we started going through (laughs) Prince songs, and he wound up knowing way more than he thought he did, and I feel like, you know, that's not a like a uh, important thing in the grand scheme of things. But I think there's a lot of people who in the last week have heard Prince songs and maybe never heard before or realized like, oh, wow, Prince wrote Manic Monday. You know, I never knew that. You know, just you're kind of raising awareness about this artist. And I think it's great that people are able to to learn more about musicians and to find new music and all that. And uh, So, yeah, rest in peace, Prince Rogers Nelson. Indeed. I drink my water in your honor. This album came out in 2011, and it was uh, the first album that Vanderslice had done not at his own studio, the first one he didn't produce by himself, and the first one that involved a large group of guest stars on the album. So um, what was your relationship to Vanderslice before this album was picked last week? Uh, well, he he gets a fair amount of play on the current whenever mm-hmm. he does, whenever he does something. Um, and so I, pro- I probably heard, you know, whatever he put out as, as singles mm-hmm. in the past, um, here and there, I was definitely familiar with his voice for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, and beyond that, not much, you know, but he was always somebody that I meant to, to visit or revisit, you know? So mm-hmm. I was, I was glad to, to be able to do that um, yeah he's a he's a guy that i discovered when i was in college uh, a friend of mine 
gave me a burned copy of his album, The Life and Death of an American Four Tracker. since he put out about 10 solo records and I probably own six or seven of them without really trying to like collect all of his albums you know just a kind of you know we all have those artists that we don't necessarily pick up everything by but we have a, a pretty good understanding of but when I heard the first the first track of this album I heard was a song called The Piano Lesson Go set a tone for for me for the album because it is such an interesting mix of a singer-songwriter playing with an orchestra and yeah. I don't mean that like like November Rain where there's like <laughs> you know orchestration over top of a rock song like no this is him and a guitar and then an orchestra yeah and it's really interesting so what did you think of the album oh I I, I thought it was gorgeous mm-hmm. um, for one thing it sounded really great um it took me a while to get into the lyrics mm-hmm. and sort of the themes on it. Um, and I'm still not sure I'm all the way there yet. Okay. Like, like my first few times listening to it, um, I really appreciated the musicianship, which this is rare for me. So, so, so I'm, I'm really glad I listened to this because, um, usually I'm like a lyrics and, and, and sort of, themes and and vocals kind of dude first you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, that's just that's just who i am um but i was really able to appreciate the the complex musicianship of this um 
and and maybe you know maybe I was sort of distant as far as whatever the themes of the album were. They weren't really resonating with me, but I just kept going back to it because of how good it all sounded. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was really impressed with. So, are you familiar with Andrew Bird at all? Yes, of course. Yeah, sure. <laughs> of course, he says. Of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it reminds I've, me- I've been following Andrew Bird since he was in the Squirrel Nut Zippers, my friend. So <laughs> you've been following him since he was uh, Andrew Egg. Exactly. Wow, yes. that's horrible. Can you edit that out? Nope. Okay. Um- <laughs> Just kidding. If you really want me to, I will. No, 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 <laughs> no. But anyway, it reminds me of what he does. I feel like he's got more popular acclaim. accurate yeah yeah but but i find this album like this album the instrumentation speaks to me more than like what andrew bird does Mm -hmm. i'm always very impressed with his albums but this like i was able to crawl inside and like like actually get into the the orchestration of this you Mm -hmm. know yeah um i was really impressed by that um and and one thing I wanted to mention before we get any further is that that what what really made me start to connect with with the themes of the album or what what have you is that it started to occur to me that some of the instrumentation, the strings, and some of the percussion um, reminded me of those old like classical music um, symphonies where like certain instruments would stand in for a certain animal you know or whatever and or like percussion would be this animal you know and like it would tell it would tell a story through music with you know without you understanding what the story is you know unless you go go beyond the music to whatever text they're pulling from you know yeah to me before i even understood what this album was about I, I felt it in the music, like okay, here are the here are the uh, you know violins or whatever doing this over here. Here's the percussion doing this, and it's creating this like environment almost. Um, so so even if I haven't wrapped myself around the the words or anything yet, I, I was blown away by like how much I got into the orchestration. That never happens for me. Um, so, I don't know. What do you think about that? Does that, <laughs> that no that that's definitely interesting. I um you know, I have a rule that I usually abide by, which is unless your name is the Beatles or Elton John, I don't want to hear an orchestra on your recording. <laughs> um I think most of the time rock musicians with orchestras do it very lazily. You know, I mentioned November Rain before. That's like to me that's a a, a shining example of this where 
I don't think most orchestration really adds all that much to uh, to a song. You know, I, I think it may be... Yes, yes. Maybe it maybe it's a highlighter highlighting, you know, certain phrases in the music. But it rarely adds anything that I think is really interesting or insightful to the music. And I think if you take some of these songs and you pulled out the orchestra, you wouldn't be left with much. You know, it's really he is playing with the orchestra. It's not the orchestra backing him up. Like they're almost equal partners on this for sure for sure and that is what excites me about it is that it really seems like first of all we should mention the orchestra is called the magic magic orchestra they are a uh, a group that uh, according to their website has ranged in size from one member to over 80 members <laughs> depending on the project that they do and they've worked with a number of musicians in similar capacities um and they are all under the direction of someone named mina Choi. And she is the one who wrote all of the arrangements for this. And so um, the story behind the album a little bit is that Vanderslice had written this batch of songs and he knew that they were going to be orchestrated by this particular uh, composer and her group. And then he just kind of let them come up with it. And he had very little input on what she was doing. And the album was actually recorded in three days. Yeah, which is crazy because when you listen to it, it sounds like it's this lushly produced long project, but it wasn't. It was recorded almost live in three days. It sounds so good. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> uh, you would never think that this was a quickly recorded record. Um, but like I said before, it wasn't recorded in Tiny Telephone Studios, which is Vanderslice's studio where... So many great albums have been made. Um, Death Cab for Cutie recorded a lot there. Uh, the great uh, San Francisco band Beulah recorded there. Uh, he's done so much amazing production. I actually just saw this weekend, I saw uh, Into It, Over It play. And uh, he just produced their most recent album as well.
So it's you know there's a different producer, a guy named uh, John Congleton, I believe I believe I'm pronouncing that right, who has worked with everybody from um, the Mountain Goats to Explosions in the Sky to Saint Vincent to um, yeah I'm trying to think find somebody else here uh, the Good Life to um, Chelsea Wolf. Heartless Bastards, Juju, Murder by Death, Andrew Jackson, Jihad, like all these. He's, yeah. he's he has this great great resume, and he's the one who handles the production. And it was recorded at a studio in Berkeley, California, that is called Fantasy Studios, which apparently is quite a well known studio. Um, I am not necessarily all that familiar with it, but uh, according to what I've read on Wikipedia, uh, both Green Day's Dookie and Journey's Escape were recorded there. So <laughs> it's Bay Area royalty for sure. But yeah, well, it's vouch for Dookie for sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's an album that I think we'll have to talk about one day because that was a very important album in my musical development as well. Me too. Um, somebody who very much uh, works and reworks his recordings and, you know, really labors over them. And so to have him do a three-day pretty much live session, that's a pretty intense difference from what he's usually doing. And I think that putting him outside of his comfort zone wound up putting out a really different type of album for him. And one he's never really... I mean, he's only released one album since then, but his the album he released after this, um, which is, I'm blanking on the name, come on, Salvatore, Dagger Beach, there we go. Um, I know that, you know, it doesn't really reflect, it doesn't sound like a, a sequel to this. This is like a singular work in his discography, and I think that that's really interesting. Um is there a song or two that uh, you know stands out to you? For sure, um, the the one that made the most uh, impact on me upon first listen was "English Vines." Okay, just the eighth track, second to last. When finally I scale their fence to kill. Source of this malevolence Were my neighbors watching me From their houses I hacked away Vines like these Root too deep to kill We keep our blinds closed now forever 
the penultimate track, I suppose you would say. Um, that's a really sad song. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and um, the the more I listen to the album, so so I don't know. I, I don't know if the album is about anything. I don't know if I'd call it a um, concept album at all. Um, although I think there's a little bit of that in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it seems to me like the album starts one place and then it ends with with so essentially English Vines is like this capper that's really depressed like it's a it it almost feels like like the singer or whoever the narrator or whatever has aged over the course of this pretty short album you know and has lived like a lifetime and that's apparent on english vines mm-hmm. um really sad really melancholy music um uh yeah, so that immediately stood out because I'm a sad bastard. So, <laughs> I I I appreciate that. Uh, I do. Uh, to me, I mentioned it before. The piano lesson, yep. is the song that really stands out to me, only because I I think it's interesting. The song is actually about learning the piano. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really cool thing to write a song about. Is it something you, I wouldn't necessarily think to write a song about? But I think it works really well. And I think that's the example that I would give for somebody who maybe hadn't heard the album before to say, okay, the, when it's when it's a guy with an orchestra, here's what I'm talking about. I would play them that. I think that song encapsulates everything that can be done with that ensemble. Yeah. Kind of in, in one uh, fell swoop there. I also really like um, Alamany Gap. Deceptively cold place With the Alamany Gap darkening out your Which I think is one of the more, one of the more upbeat songs on the album, but again uses the orchestration uh, in a very in a very unique way. You know, I, I think Alamany Gap in a way reminds me not at all in tone but of uh, When I'm 64 by the Beatles uh, yeah. because of there's sort of this like clarinet part that runs throughout it that just has this nice little bounce to it and it reminds me of When I'm 64. I have one more I want to talk about, but is there another song you want us to talk about beforehand? Yeah, uh, Convict Lake. That's the one I want to talk about. That's the one you want to talk yeah. about. Well, then let's let's talk about Sea Salt first, okay? Because I think that's a really strong opening track, mm-hmm. um, and I think th- I think that's a I think that's actually a really good um, uh, demonstration for who John Vanderslice is as an uh, artist. Period. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's pretty representative of what you're going to hear from his catalog, you know? Yeah. 
and then that moves into Convict Lake, and that is like the instrumentation on that is bonkers. It's yeah. like it's like it's like bouncy or something. Mm-hmm. Like it's 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 very back and forth. It's it's almost like call and response at times with the instrumentation. Yeah. Um. Right, what what did you want to say about that? Well, I, I want to just go back to sea salt for one second. Oh, my, sure. My note on sea salt is that I think that towards the end of the song, you get the most conventional use of the orchestra. For the first time, I could take to After It Ends, which has no orchestra, which is just solo voice and acoustic guitar, but it's the one song that doesn't, that sounds like the orchestra could have maybe been introduced to the album after that song was recorded. Like, it sounds like the orchestra parts could have been overdubbed, whereas I feel like the other songs on the album give you don't give you that impression. Um, yeah, that's, I guess that's kind of what I thought too, like when I, when I was saying that it sounds more like what you expect from Vanderslice. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it it sounds like it's more produced than than the rest of the stuff on the album, and I whether I don't think that's true at all. I just think that's the way it sounds. Yeah, you know? I, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing either. It's just to me, it sounds a little bit different than the rest of the songs on the record because of that, you know. Sure. Um, but uh, Convict Lake it has a has a line in it that I really really like, and I wrote this line down um, the other day. It is small black X on the edge of the camp. I couldn't wait to fall off the map. <laughs> uh, and I think that's a really, really great lyric. And I think that the the lyrical picture that he paints on that song might be the strongest he paints on the whole album. Um, yeah, yeah. The, bound down like Gulliver tied up in thread. I like that one too. Cause yeah, yeah. You know, he he wakes in a hospital bed, bound down like Gulliver, tied up in thread. Uh, Gulliver's travels, of course. Yeah. Um, just a really good reference. Just a really strong, like, again, it's like a strong capper for this song. Um, yeah. Yeah, really impressive. And so I took another time.
I didn't, you know, sometimes I, 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 I tend to vacillate between am I going to really research the what the lyrics are about or am I going to just kind of let me, you know, try and take it in naturally, right, and, uh-huh. and see. And I didn't do too much research on, on what this song was technically about, but to me it sounds like it might be about an experience taking drugs. Ah, um, my friends came down way too soon. I stayed high with the silvery moon. Mm-hmm. Like maybe it's a, a song about about doing drugs. I, I'm not. I'm not sure. And I'm also a guy who's never gotten high. So it's <laughs> you know I'm I'm like the last person to be talking about that sort of of experience. Um, but I felt like this was a very personal song. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is about about the lyric that to me sounded particularly personal, but. For whatever reason, it struck me as a very, very personal song. Um, I did want to talk for a second about the uh, the track I just mentioned a minute ago, After It Ends, which is just voice and acoustic guitar. And I think it's an interesting choice to put on the album because it does stand out so much because of the simplicity of it and because of the lack of ornate instrumentation on it. But I think it, it sort of sets a nice... It's a nice palate cleanser in the middle of the album. After that comes Overcoat, which begins with the closest thing we have really to distortion on the album. <laughs> the, uh, the the drum track, you know, is not this like clean, crisp drum track. It, it, it sort of it purposely sounds a little bit noisier, and I think that that is more pronounced because right before it, you're getting this solo acoustic guitar and voice piece. Yeah. That makes sense. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, I guess I, I should not bury the lead here. After this discussion, I'm going to have you're going to hear about a 15 minute conversation I had with John Vanderslice just about an hour ago. I had emailed him out of the blue because I've been listening to the album a lot, and I just thought, hey, he's a friendly guy. Maybe he'll talk to me about the album. And he was incredibly kind and generous with his time. And so he, he goes into a little bit of the um, the genesis behind the album and his memories associated with it. I don't want to spoil that too much, but I do think it's important to note that he said this was not a happy album to make for him and that there were a lot of problems with the production of it, not necessarily 
he he doesn't think it bleeds through to the product itself, but when he listens to it, he can kind of hear the the fraught nature that went into making it and some personal stuff that was going on, going on at the time. And I think it's so interesting to hear that because I don't I don't not hear it on the album, you know, but it's just interesting to hear what the circumstances that led to the recording of the album are. And I guess my question for you, Vince, is do you like knowing that stuff before hearing an album or do you like to hear it blind and then go into that stuff later on? I like to hear that stuff after. Me too. Um, yeah, I just um, – because hearing, hearing that now, like the opening track, Sea Salt, will probably seem sound pretty different to me because um, I already think that that's a song that's about like – about man getting knocked down, you know, right? Uh, in some way, and n- now when I go back and listen to it, I'm going to have that in my head that you know he said that, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if if that totally comes through in right. a different way. And sometimes I, I worry about the way that, especially today, the unless you're a Beyonce and you're releasing an album <laughs> out of the blue. What a segue. <laughs> Which we'll get to in a few minutes, yeah. But, you know, unless you're that person, the narrative becomes the most important part of the album before the album is even released. Right. You know, like, I don't think that anybody heard The Life of Pablo without having a pretty good <laughs> idea as to what led to The Life of Pablo. Uh-huh. Maybe not in specifics, but certainly in generalities, Right. We all know who Kanye is at this point in his life. We all know who he's married to. We all know the $57 million in debt thing. Like, there's there's so many parts of that story that that preceded the album that it's hard to hear the album divorced from that. Yes. And I, I sometimes really lament that because I think that there's... Some of my favorite albums, I have my own personal beliefs about what they're about that probably are totally not in line with what the artist was going for, but they, uh-huh. that means a lot to me, though. And I like being able to have those personal connections. And I think sometimes we could easily lose those if 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 we if we focus too much on the narrative. For sure. Yeah. Um, so at, think, at, the, at the same time, well... I, go at ahead. At the same time, I just think... I think also popular music in some way is so driven by narratives and stuff like that. Yeah. That it's almost unavoidable. I mean, for, for a guy like John Vanderslice, whose life you're not uh, bombarded with all the time. You're not reading about it in the tabloids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's easier to crawl inside of an album and try to figure out what it's about or make your own meaning or find your own meaning. Um, Whereas, it, yeah, it's kind of unavoidable what's going on with Kanye or Beyonce or Jay Z or you know whoever. Yeah. Um, so. And that's also not a new problem. You know, I'm saying not like it's a new problem. I, yeah. I'm I'm pretty sure that even when you know in the mid '60s when the Beatles and the Stones were releasing new albums, people were reading into the circumstances that led to those albums before ever hearing a word of them. Oh sure. So that's not a new thing in the slightest. No. Uh, any closing thoughts on the album? Um, 
I just I, I just think the instrumentation is so cool. Um, I hope that aspect of it went well for him. I don't know. I don't know what you know the the problems he's alluding to are, but uh, but I think I think it bore out a tremendous album. Yeah, and and I I think you know he he said so much that he's very pleased with the way it turned out. Again, I don't want to spoil it too much for our listeners, but he talks about how I guess this was a hard sell to the people in his like creative circle, like his management and his record label. They weren't totally enthused with the idea of him doing an album with an orchestra. And uh, he said that that in some ways very much colored the way he thought about it too, where he just felt like he was fighting an uphill battle the whole time he was making the album. Mm. And that's really interesting to me because, again, like I don't think... I can understand why, if you are part of somebody's team, you want them to do what's safe because that means that your job is safe to yeah. a certain degree. But I think if you're in the... Like, you know, let's not kid ourselves. Even if this album was as successful as it could be as like an independently released indie rock record from 2011 was, it still wouldn't, it wouldn't sell a million copies probably. You know, so it seems like the margin for victory and error is thinner. And so if you, to me, those are the type of artists that should take the big risks, right? Yeah. Because they don't have anything to lose really from taking that huge risk, you know, or, or maybe they have more to lose. I don't know. I just like artists that take chances, and so it it was it was surprising to me to hear that that you know that there was not total joy in the Vanderslice camp around the yeah. making of this album. That's interesting. Yeah. Um. So anyway, we've kind of already alluded to next week's album, which which is rare. We haven't discussed an album outside of I guess the first week. And then I knew Kanye was coming, but I don't even know if you told me Kanye. I think I just knew Kanye was coming. We, yeah, you just. I think we just kind of assumed. Yeah, uh, but know. but what is what is next week's album? So next next week, Brian, we are going to invite you into the Bay Hive, <laughs> and we are going to listen to Beyonce's Lemonade. They don't love you like I love you Slow down, they don't love you like I love you Back up, they don't love you like I love you Step down, they don't love you like I love you Can't you see there's no other man above you What a wicked way to treat the girl that loves you Oh love, they don't love you like I love you Oh down, they don't love you like I love you Something don't feel uh, right Album released in secret on Saturday evening um, after I guess on H I guess HBO debuted this special called Lemonade that people didn't quite know what it was, but it turns out it's another visual album. Um, I did not know it was going to be on, or I would have set the DVR for it, but I so I missed that. Um, yeah, have you well, watched it? Just load up title and uh... yeah, well, I I did sign up for the free trial for this. There you go. <laughs> um, but you know she already released it on iTunes and Amazon, so. Yeah, I will not be keeping that that title <laughs> subscription. Oh dang! Yeah, sorry, Jay. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm excited to uh, to dive into it. I really am. Yeah, and uh, this continues our uh, our trend of 
two weeks looking nothing like each other. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I have to compliment you again on that hell of a segue. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. I was at one time a semi-professional broadcaster, so, you know, <laughs> these are the things that I uh, I guess I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> um, but if people want to find out more about the NFL draft, let's say, uh, where would they God. go about doing that? Hopefully not my Twitter timeline, because <laughs> I'm a mess. Um, you can find me at VJ underscore O-S-T-R-O-W-S-K-I. And this will be our last episode before the draft. So give us a give us your best your best guess on the draft on the Packers first round pick. Uh the best available athlete, Brian. Isn't that, isn't that what they always say? Isn't that what every team says? <laughs> yes. When yep. they draft in any sport, yeah. Of course, because you know your pick comes up. You're not taking the second best available <laughs> athlete. You're not taking the tenth best. My then, dad used to be, be just a little nugget here. When I was growing up, we would watch the NFL draft um, and get excited about the Packers because that's all there is to do in Wisconsin. Um, and so my dad would he you know I'd come into the room and he'd be like I know who the Packers are going to draft and I'd be like oh my god how, how do you know oh I just I know it 100 percent I know it I'm like ah uh, who is it who is it the best available athlete he'd say that every time. <laughs> He got me every time until I was like 16 and too smart for it then. <laughs> but Wow. Yeah. It's a dad joke. It is a dad joke. The eternal dad joke. As a dad, I appreciate it though. <laughs> it's it's funny. My like dad sports memory as a kid was there is a there's a, a former network around here called the Sports Channel, very creatively titled. And uh the Sports Channel had the rights to Mets games. And my dad would always bet me if the Mets were gonna win or lose. But he would only bet me when the replay was on. But I was too young to realize it was a replay. So he'd be like, I bet you a dollar that, you know, Gary Carter hits a home run right now. And I'd say, I'll take that bet. And then he'd hit a home run, and I'd wonder why. Well, because it happened at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. But, you know, we were watching it in the evening. So nice. he would never actually take my money either. He wasn't he wasn't a deadbeat dad who was, no, you know, taking my, taking my, my hard-earned cash. But um, <laughs> if you want to hear about um, – I guess uh, dad things <laughs> and uh, the New York Mets you can follow me on Twitter at Brian needs a nap. You can see both of us jergensing each other back and forth, <laughs> which is a deep DC three oh, cut. God. You want to see that? <laughs> I don't know if they want to, but you know, they're going to, they follow us both. They're going to see that. <laughs> and uh, until we see you in the Bay hive, have a wonderful <laughs> week folks. <laughs> Never meant to cause you any pain I only wanted to see you laughing Only wanted to see you laughing in the pool
Anyway, so uh, as part of this show that I do, I, I pair a contemporary album with a an album that could be a month old, could be a couple years old. And so for this week, I paired White Wilderness because it is one of my favorite records of the last decade or so. And I think that... Oh, that's awesome, man. That's great. Cool. And I, I think that it's such a unique record in your discography. So can you just take us through sort of what, what led you to make an album? You know, I mean, let me back up for a second. You know, your records are known for this, you know, this elaborate recording process and, you know, you own your own studio and, and the studio is such an instrument on your records. And then this album is done very quickly with a large ensemble with minimal sort of production tricks, I guess is, a, I don't like that word, but you understand what I'm saying, you know? And oh yeah. Yeah. So it's true. Yeah. Uh, what, in, what inspired this, this different uh, type of record for you? Well, I think that, you know, part of the way that I had made records up to that point was like very consistently studio as an instrument, you know, with like the kind of marching order, you know what I mean? Like, the, the studio and the potential of deconstruction in the studio was like, that was the point, you know, sometimes, you know, I mean, we, we really tried to dismantle songs more than anything. And I mean, there were, you know, all those records really starting from, from, uh, from time travels only were, were recorded. So, um, out of order and out of sequence, often drums were done last and often things would have been replaced a couple times. And that, you know, basic harmonic information was disappeared. And, you know, that we were always after this uneven structure, you know, that you can only get by recording something that is like a bed, you know, that, that kind of structures the song and then, then uh, erasing it. Um, and then, so I, I, you know, I had explored that, that road like pretty intensely and in recording in, in started writing for Mina, uh, I started to get become like, I don't know, more um, extreme in the vision of the record that it should be done under extreme time constraints. And, um, and of course that would, that worked really well because it's so expensive to have an orchestra around. So that, that was, it kind of like made sense. And also um, it was so opposite of, of how I'd worked previously that it was, I mean, it was going to create something different for sure, you know, and it definitely did. And it was really destabilizing for me. And it was like kind of a bummer. Like it wasn't fun at all to make the record. And I, I really? really thought it was going to be, yeah, I, I thought it was going to be awesome. And I, I had gotten kittens um, who I'm looking at right now and who I would probably like jump in front of a train to save their life. Like, I mean, I adore my cats. Like I am a total animal addict, but I love these creatures, but I had gotten them maybe two weeks before the tracking and I got intense cat allergies. You know, they were baby long hair cat kittens. And so I ended up staying in a hotel just to try to like shake it, you know, while, while my, my girlfriend took care of the cats. And I, I never really got my voice back from having this intense allergic reaction to these kittens. And I can hear, when I hear that record, I hear my voice um, 
fucked up, you know, and limited. Now, and I don't really care because I don't think that people listen to music that way. And I, I really don't like it when bands point out these like really insignificant changes. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like no one cares. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I've, I've toured with bands that are sick and you just can't even tell. So it just doesn't, people don't listen to music trying to like, you know, find weaknesses. They're, they're either in or they're out, you know? And, and so I don't have any bad feelings about it. I just, when I think back, it causes anxiety because I remember being so torn up about recording that record in top to bottom in three days. And it was just really, there just wasn't any room to recover from like having a fucked up voice and from, and, and that, that, um, affected the whole record for me all the way through to touring on it actually so uh, you know it's funny how these things and i'm not sensitive in that way like at all you know what i mean but it just was really stressful the album for sure so and in a way that no other record stressed me out and i don't think that's bad it's just that was just my experience you know yeah it's interesting because your voice definitely does have a fragility to it on the album that i think I mean, to me, I, I like it when people sound human. You know, I like yeah, records oh, yeah, that sound like yep. people make them. And so sometimes a vocalist is going to sound a little bit different. That doesn't bother me as a listener. But it's interesting yeah. now hearing you say this, okay, that that makes a little bit of sense. Um, I wanted to ask you about the composition of the songs a little bit. Did you know going in when you started writing these tracks, okay, this is going to be a different type of recording? Or did these tracks just kind of, those were the songs you had written before you made that decision, you know, where did, where did the decision to make this record with the magic, magic orchestra with the, Oh, like way frame? in the beginning. Okay. So I wrote the songs like really st very specifically, like basically, and how that would like change is that, you know, I built in whatever dissonances, whatever harmonic, you know, irregularities, I built it into the basic song structure. You know, I didn't, I didn't leave anything to chance. I mean, the songs are relatively simple, but there's uh, probably more aggressive key changes happening just because I knew that it wasn't going to be overlaid with like a bunch of weird sounding Moogs or distorted instruments. So I, I wanted to make sure there was enough like stuff that was out of balance, you know, off mm -hmm. kilter. Um, and I certainly wrote musical sections very, very open, knowing that Nina would could fill them in. So the the structures, the whole song, every song on that record was specifically written for Mina and for her to orchestrate it. So it is, it's very, it was a very, very different record for me. And you know, the the, the other thing too is, that, you know, when you do stuff like this you lose support oddly enough it's kind of strange to even say this but you lose support from your crew and i remember clearly thinking that the label who i really loved they were great and i don't i don't blame them at all but i remember clearly thinking that they weren't a hundred percent on board <laughs> with the record you know what i mean and like i remember thinking that my um manager at the time who was also awesome was, you know, maybe not, it's not an easy sell and it's, it's just a little bit winnows down the audience a little bit. And I remember somewhere in my mind thinking like, fuck this, like, <laughs> you know, like art, artists should be able to do whatever they want and people should be 
pumped that the people that they're working with are trying to have a long, long career and stretch out. You know, I remember feeling a little bit, I mean, I probably was, they probably didn't care as much as I thought they did, but I, I, I felt, remember feeling that people were not as jazzed. And I don't mean after the record, I mean like during when it was being made and when it was being conceived, like I already felt like I lost a little bit of support by saying, Hey, I'm going to make a record with an orchestra. Like, and maybe that just feels like a, you know, to some people it's like a sleepy, boring idea. You know what I mean? Like well, to me, it sounds awesome, but you know, it's interesting I don't, because I don't know. you break one of my cardinal rules of music, which is only Elton John and the Beatles can use an orchestra. Like in rock and roll, those yeah. are the only two acts that I feel like an orchestra usually makes their songs sound better. But this album doesn't use the orchestra in the November Rain way, right? It doesn't just take yeah, yeah. like a section of the song to make it more dramatic. The orchestra really is, I mean, something like the Piano Lesson, which is the first song I heard off the record, actually. The or If you pulled the orchestra out, I don't know what would be left. You know, it's such an intrigue. Yeah, it, it would make no sense. It really wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, and that's why all. it works, though, <laughs> because it, it's it's yep. not just overlaying strings for dramatic effect. It's You're playing with a band. The band just happens to be a 19-piece orchestra. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. And I was just stunned by how cool the shit that Nina did on the record. And I, I just remember thinking like, you know, the crew should be pumped that, that we're all in a headspace of kind of reaching out because we knew it was going to be good and we knew it was going to be interesting. And, you know, I think probably them looking back, I'm sure they're like, well, it makes sense in the, in the line of records and it, you know, I think that any, I think that to, to, to make 10 records, you have to stretch out and you have to kind of defy like logic a little bit, you know, like, I mean, that, that feels like a lot of content and I tried not to repeat myself as much as possible. And I tried to, to make myself uncomfortable as much as possible. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I look back and I'm, I'm, I'm I'm happy I did that and I like but yeah I mean I definitely do remember thinking hmm I don't have the energy to sell this to people that I'm working with right now that that's really fascinating to me because you know as a fan I love it when an artist that I appreciate takes a chance even if the chance doesn't always succeed you know, yeah, there's only one Ramones important. for a reason, right? Only one band yeah. can make the same album over and over. Uh, maybe ACDC too. You know, a couple of bands can do that. But you know, the bands I'm really interested in are the are the people who take chances. And so, I I'm glad that you took the chance. And I think that I mean, at least the people I talk to, it's it's an album that we all really appreciate, we all really enjoy. So thank you for that. Well, that's awesome. And, yeah, thank uh, you. It's been a couple of years. I, I was I was one of the many to support your Kickstarter. When you did the last record, uh, when can we hope to hear awesome. some new music? Well, I'm really, really happy to say that um, I have no plans making a record, and I don't say that. Um, uh, I don't know why it makes me laugh. It kind of makes me excited to say that for some reason. Like, I I made a decision that I was going to hit ten records. It would, this wasn't like an intellectual. You know, I didn't announce it. No one cared. Like, you know, like there's a lot of content on the planet Earth. Like, where everyone's fine. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't I don't think that people necessarily need to make records. 
Um, but I hit 10 records and, and I said to myself that I would build the new studio, Oakland, mm-hmm. and that I would, I would wait and see if I had something that I wanted to say musically. And after Oakland was built, which, you know, opened January of this year, and that was very intense. That was probably the hardest, honestly, the hardest thing I ever did was to open that studio. I mean, that was harder than touring and <laughs> making records for sure. It was because it's like a million dollar studio built out of like thin air and bailing wire and like, you know, promised loans. And, you know, it was very, I mean, it wasn't um, crooked, but it was pretty close to being like unethical. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, we were just begging people for money in the end. It was rough, man. And like, we had a lot of sympathy and a lot of like pity and that shit saved the day, man. I mean, really, people like stepped up. I mean, it was crazy. The shit, just even the pat in the last like week before we opened, was thank God for the people around me, man. I mean, they were just incredible. And now everything's totally. It's been four months, and it's stable, and loans are starting to get paid off, and it feels way more rational now. But the the year leading up to opening was definitely the toughest year of my life. But so that, and that's, that's great. We're, we're on the planet to do, you know, to be challenged. Like I loved it. It was fucking awesome. And it was really, I mean, I survived it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I cried and I like melted down and I reached a new, entirely new threshold of what I can take anxiety wise, which is pretty awesome, man. It's really hard to get me rattled now. And that's kind of cool, you know? But when that, when the studio opened, I then just, because I owed so much money, I went in crazy into producing other people's records. And man, other than the overworking part of it, that is so much fun. It is so inspiring. And I never, you know, sadly or not, I never come home and pick up my guitar <laughs> ever. <laughs> like, I mean, I played, like I did, um, I'm working with Darnell of the Mountain Goats right now. He He did like a, a bunch of um, uh, kind of improv recordings a few weeks ago at the studio, and I'm, I'm mixing them now and adding like Mini Moog and Prophet Five and dubbing them out and and then mixing it for him and sending it to him. And like, it's some of the most enjoyable creative shit you know in the world. And I just don't. I do so much stuff like that that's not under my name, and there's something amazing about the freedom of not having to like button up a record and then get in a van and tour a year on it. It's just so awesome, man. And I love touring. I love my bandmates. I mean, thank God they all work at the studio. So I see them, but like it's, it feels, it feels like a really amazing time of my life that is just preserved in amber. It's great. And I love it when people don't overstay their welcome. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like I, I know that I could eke out a couple more records, but I don't feel what I felt in, you know, 2008 or whenever I made Romanian names and, and I, you know, recorded 24 songs in one year or, you know, even with, when I did Dagger Beach and, and Diamond Dogs in one year where it was just it was so creatively intense and challenging and I kind of got it out of my system. I know this is a really long answer, but, but (laughs) it's a, I want to be respectful to the question. You know what I mean? Like it's not a flip decision and I almost don't even think it's a decision. And I think it's absolutely beautiful when people do different things and they challenge themselves in different ways. And 
the other thing is I hear really, really good bands every day at the studio. I mean, like I hear some crazy shit down there and it makes me think, you know what? Let's let other people like set their gear up on stage and play shows and put out records. Like, like we, we don't have to, our egos don't have to be so fragile and domineering that they have to just be like sounding out these tones. Look at me and pay attention to me. So I, I just, you know, maybe it's a Zen position or it's like a philosophically like ambivalent position, but there will probably not be another record is the, is the short answer. I, I have interviewed musicians for 15 years, and that might be the most honest answer I've ever heard from a musician. So thank you for that. Yeah, of course, absolutely. And I, I do, I hear musicians talk about their careers, and I usually I'm like wincing because you hear in their voice stuff that you don't want to admit to yourself or say, you know what I mean? Like the, just the fragility of being creative and the impermanence of all this stuff. And I, I, I just really try to be very honest with myself and, and try to like really make, and and, and it's painful, you know, tour, stopping touring was like one of the, I felt like a heroin addict. Like I literally could not, stop touring for three, four years. Like I couldn't stop even if I wanted to. And that was really scary to me because I realized that it was so reflexive. It wasn't even something I necessarily wanted to do. It's just that I was addicted to so much of the like compressed and like rapid fire, um, emotional, content I was getting from touring. Like it's very, very drug-like. I mean, it, there's nothing more overwhelming than touring and, and being at home, it's like that Goodfellas scene, you know, where he's getting the paper and he's like, I'm just like another schmuck. You know what I mean? <laughs> like there is, you see that and you're like, yeah, you know, like, and, but it's, you know, we're supposed to like become different people in our lives. And my biggest fear is not becoming a different person. It's just being a static version of who I was when I was 15, which is what I was for, you know, 20 years. Wow. Uh, well, I, I appreciate the honesty. And you know, the other thing I'll, I want to say is I, I love your production. You know, I've every now and then I'll hear an album and I'll think this, this is really well produced. And Oh, this is a Vanderslice joint. Okay. That's why it sounds so great. So you're still giving back to those who love music by, by having the studio, I mean, just, just the amount of great records that come out of your studio is a testament to the work you've done. So thank you for all of that. And if Sure, you, thanks, man. If you ever make another record, you know I'm going to buy one. So you got at least one Fuck sale. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. 